And if you please take out your copies of God's word and turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, where we are finishing up part two uh, of this parable. This really important parable of the prodigal son, as it's been called. I am going to read uh, the entirety of the parable for us today, because uh, we will be referring back to other portions of it. It will be important to keep the whole of the parable in mind, though we are going to be making our focus on the latter half of the parable as we look at the elder brother. Nonetheless, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, this is Jesus speaking, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go once more and pray as we examine this text together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage that's before us. I ask that you would help us to understand it, that we would be challenged by it. I pray that I would be able to preach it accurately and powerfully. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
we have a culture in our church of testimonies. And it appears that we have different tiers of testimonies and those that are more impressive than those that are not. I remember hearing a Christian comedian talking about these tendencies of our preferring these more prodigal testimonies. And we would hear this man's testimony who has come back from the dregs of society and we hear him finish that testimony and we think, oh man, that's an awesome testimony. Wish I was addicted to crack. Because we somehow think this would make our testimony more impressive. We would have committed some real sins in our lives for God to have deliver us from. Those of us who were raised in church with so-called boring testimonies of coming to faith when we were children and staying away from the big sins, this is something that we have looked at and we kind of wonder, well, what, is, what big thing has God done with us? But you know, while there is definitely something to celebrate about God keeping those of us that, were, that came to faith early as children, God was gracious to draw us early, there is something to rejoice about that we don't have sins in our lives that can bring a lot of baggage. But there is a category of sin that is much more likely, though not always, it's much more likely to afflict the boring testimony people. It's a category of sin that affects the good kids, the church kids, and the boring Presbyterians that we have a danger of. And it's the sin of doing good things for the wrong reasons. It's being, as Mark Twain once put it, a good man in the worst sense of the word. It's the danger of seeing our relationship with God as deserved. It's the danger of seeing his love as conditional. Of course God loves me. Look at all that I've done, and look at all that I haven't done. Of course the Lord welcomes me into his fellowship. This sin causes us to forget that we are all saved by grace, even our supposed good ones, our good works. The elder son, as we've seen here, is no more or less of a son than the younger brother was. The younger brother was given access to all the same clothes, the same rings, and the same shoes as the older brother, not because he was a prodigal, but because he was a son, because he was the object of his father's grace. But that's not how the older brother saw it. The older brother saw his own actions as deserving of the Father's good grace because of his good deeds. As Tim Keller has provocatively put it, it's not the older brother's badness that is keeping him out of this fellowship meal, but it's his goodness. It's not his sins that are keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father so much as his righteousness. The elder brother, in the end, is lost not despite of his good record, but because of it. In other words, because this older son looked to himself and compared himself to his brother, rather than seeing his father as gracious, he has denied himself a seat at the table. This is what we're going to see here in this second half of this parable. This is the part of the parable that we tend to forget, mostly because this is titled The Prodigal Son. 
We forget there's two sons that are involved here. And there's one son that we don't get to see the end result for. This is this elder brother. Now, it's worth keeping in mind as we dive into this passage that we are reminded who is being talked to in this. If we go back to the first part of Luke chapter 15 in these first two verses, let's remind ourselves as to who the audience is. Verse, uh, chapter, chapter 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. This is Jesus' audience, a mixture of sinner and self-appointed saints as they're looking on and hearing Jesus' teachings. And here, it's pretty obvious as to who the prodigal son would have been referring to, those in the audience who would have been tax collectors and prostitutes and living all manner of evil lives might have been able to identify with this first son. But it's this second son is what's coming for the Pharisees and the scribes. And really, in today's audiences, even in America, these two groups of people still exist, the younger brothers and the older brothers. And we tend to find ourselves in either one or the other, or sometimes both simultaneously, of these camps. So we're going to hear what God has to say to us today. We're continuing our outline that we saw last time, and that uh, we're looking instead at the second point that God entreats the resentful. This is what he is coming to today. So let's take a look at this elder brother, and let's see if we can slide into the overworked sandals of the elder brother. Here, this younger brother has just come back after blowing a third of the family's wealth. It would have, a third portion would have been given to him, and he has taken generations to build, and he has blown it in the space of a few months. And here he is coming back and is trying to come back into the father's home. And as we just read, he is not only tolerated, but he is celebrated as he comes back. Kills the fatted calf, something that would have been done only really for religious festivals or thing or once in a lifetime kind of happy receptions. And here, all of this has been given to him. And what we can see in this old, this elder brother, this rising feeling of tremendous injustice. How dare the father give all of that good stuff to the younger brother? It's bad enough that it's been being given to the younger brother in a society that would mostly treat things as older brother first and then goes on from there. But it's even worse that it's going to be dishonored younger brother is getting all of this. The younger brother is in the family tuxedo. He's wearing the signet ring. He's got the shoes on his feet. When the elder's brother's mind, it should have been, this should have been celebrating his own work. Years of faithfulness. When this younger brother has brought nothing but shame, he's brought honor. When this younger brother took away wealth, this older brother has been adding wealth. When that son was gone, he was right there in the field. And he just can't conceive how this sinful younger brother could possibly be forgiven. It's just not right. Right? how we can think sometimes, isn't it? We don't necessarily think about this way when we've heard of the 
awesome testimony of someone who has come from a terrible background and has come to Christ and we've seen their life has been transformed by Christ. We don't tend to discriminate against that. What we do do tend to do is to figure the people that have before they have come to Christ that there is no hope for them. We have a hierarchy of sins in our own mind. And I think that's different for each one of us as to what sort of sinner we would tolerate or which ones we wouldn't. I'll leave, a, leave that to your minds as to who it is that you would think there's no way someone like that can come to Christ. There's no way someone like that could be welcomed into my home. I don't care what it is that they say they've recovered from. I will not tolerate that sort of a thing. That's what we tend to do. We tend to forget that they are saved by grace as well. And that it's not a matter of how bad that they are that would determine how far away they are from God, but how good God is in being able to reach and bring them to himself. The problem is, is when we think in these ways that people are irredeemable, beyond hope, we begin to act accordingly. We stop praying for them. We start thinking thoughts we shouldn't think about them or start hating them. And then we might even begin to believe that that hatred is in fact a righteous thing. We're standing for truth in an age when no one does. So I like what this older brother is doing. Looks at this younger brother and assumes that there is simply nothing that he is worth. So we come and we join him in verse 28. He's just heard the news that his brother is back. Verse 28 begins, it says, but he was angry and refused to go in. The word that uses, that is translated here, angry, refers to an explosive rage. This is as mad as this brother has probably ever been in his life. He is refusing to go into this dinner, which would be a terrible insult, by the way. Part of the older brother's job in these ancient times when there was a celebration that was to be had, he was to sit nearby the father and to serve everyone else who was there. Was a show of approval and of joining in the celebration of the father. But here he is refusing to take on those duties. He is so insulted by what his father has done that he insults his father back. Try to capture what this would be like. Imagine an older brother getting into a shouting match with his father at his sister's wedding reception. Awkward doesn't begin to describe it. You just want to get out because you see the terrible insult that's going on and the absolute lack of thought as to what's about everyone else's feelings. And that's what he's doing. I imagine him here angrily chopping wood, trying to direct his anger in some way as he's refusing to go in. Now, the father, as an ancient nobleman, had a couple of different options here. What, he, what most fathers probably would have done would have been to send out one of the slaves to go out and drag him by his ear into the dinner and say, you will come here because you are dishonoring of the family. But the father doesn't do that. The father instead gets up from the table and goes out himself. And look at the word that he uses here. Verse 29. Or excuse me, verse 28. The last part of verse 28. His father came out and entreats him. He invites him. Gently bringing him, trying to bring him back into this table fellowship. 
does this grace of this father know no end? Here it is. He's just been scorned by the first son who's just now come back. And now when things are finally starting to get normal, now the older son's going off the rails. But yet this father just continues to be gracious, continues to come out and entreat the older brother. Now, what does the older brother, how does he respond? Verse 29, but despite the entreaties, he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. The rage comes out. All these years of resentment have been building up and now they finally explode in one great firework. And look what he does here. In verse 29, he doesn't even address his father as father. He's essentially saying, look you, all that I've done. Even the younger son didn't do that, by the way. Even when he was coming up and asking for the share of the property, he at least says, father, can I have the property? His older son doesn't even honor him with that. And then he goes on, look, these many years I have served you. The word that we can translate there could actually be translated, I have slaved for you all these years. And I've never been disobedient, forgetting that he's being disobedient right now. He has served him, but he's not serving him right now. He is dishonoring of his father and he doesn't even realize it. His son has had nothing to do with gentleness in this moment. Now you hear the complaint that he has. I've, I've served you. I've not gotten anything. This, old, this younger son of yours doesn't even identify him as his own brother. Wants to try to distance himself as much as possible from that guy. Says, your older, this younger son has devoured all of your property and you're gracious to him. A few months ago, we had Bert Boykin come in here and do an evangelism class. It was wonderful. And one of the things that he taught us to do was to listen carefully to what people were saying. Because oftentimes you could hear the real questions people were asking by what they were saying. It wouldn't be explicitly stated, but if you listened closely, you could kind of hear what was being said. Can you hear what's being said by this older brother? What's really being said by this older brother? I mean, yes, he's talking about the fact that he's not gotten what he's wanted out of his father. But if I had to hazard a guess, I would say that his real question would be, what's the point of being good? What's the point of being righteous and being obedient if all you're going to do is forgive, extravagantly, by the way, those who sin against you? Doesn't righteousness get you anything extra? Now, can you hear what's in that question? Here, the older son is thinking to himself, he's actually quite different from the younger brother because he's been on the farm while the younger brother's been out who knows where. But they're really not all that different, are they? What are they both after? They're not after a relationship with the father, are they? They're after his riches. The moment that the father seems to give his riches to another, the older brother loses his mind. And the moment the younger brother thinks that he might not be able to get it or has to wait till his father's to die, he's going to lose his mind. 
has no sense of this relationship, only wants his money and not his fellowship. Both do not value this relationship. But it goes further. They don't even understand this relationship, much less value it. One scholar point out, uh, pointed out that both of the sons felt like the father's love was conditional. The younger son felt that he had messed up so badly that there was no way the father could love him anymore. And the older felt that he was so obedient that the father had to love him. But the simple fact of the matter is that the father loved them both, not on the basis of anything that they had or hadn't done, but was solely because he loved him. And that's the point I want us to drive home for us to ourselves. We do not deserve the love of God because we started acting good when before we were acting bad. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal God, which is a much longer form meditation on this passage, would highly commend it to you. He puts it this way. He says, the antidote to being bad isn't just being good. Read that again. The antidote to being bad isn't just being good. In other words, the answer to a bad life is not self-reform. So what is it? Well, Keller continues. What What must we do then to be saved? To find God, we must repent of the things we have done wrong. But if that is all you do, you may remain just an elder brother. To truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. In other words, if we did good things because we thought our actions were what caused God to favor us, then we need to repent of those things. Our Father's love is not conditional. We cannot buy the love of God by doing good things. Because if we could, then that would mean that God would owe us salvation, isn't it? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 wouldn't be in effect because it wouldn't be by grace that we were saved through faith, but it would be by good works and impressive deeds. That's not what we find. It's really, really easy to fall into this because in our quest for assurance of salvation, we look to our own lives. This was something that I struggled with constantly when I was growing up. I was looking down at myself and seeing, is there enough transformation that I've had in my life to be able to be sure that Jesus has saved me? What I was doing was looking in the wrong direction. And you know what would happen? When I was living life the way that I was supposed to be, I felt like I was very saved and felt like that I was deserved to be used of God. But then when I was sinful, as I always was, and just when I realized it, then I would feel bitterly unqualified that there's no way that God could use someone like me. Now, the reality is is that that's true. On my own, I can't do anything for God, but God can transform me because it's not about what it is that I manage to do or not do that pulls me into his good graces but it's what Christ has already done for me. And when I focus on that, 
Well, then the life transformation takes care of itself. It's a natural consequence of staring at the Savior and worshiping the Savior. You become what you worship. And if you are sitting at the altar of self and saying, wow, look how much I am transformed. Look how many good things that I do. Just be a pale version of yourself. But instead, when we look to Christ, we get that perfect balance. We are reminded, wow, I am way more sinful than I ever thought that I could be. But even at this, in the same glance, we would then find that, wow, Jesus is way more gracious than I ever thought he could be. That's what should have happened here with these sons. When the younger son comes home to the father, his, his thought should have been, I know what my father is like. I know how gracious he is to his servants and to everyone else that he's had contact with. I know he can be gracious to me. And the older brother should have looked at that and not be surprised that he had killed the fatted calf for the younger son. And said, well, of course. Look how gracious my father is. That he would go and he would have this great sacrifice for this younger brother of mine. What a reason to celebrate. You see, the fatted calf would have been slaughtered for the whole village. This is where the older brother has oh, everything stuck in his own mind. When everything is on the basis of who has done what, he can't go in and enjoy this celebration. Everyone else in the village is having the fatted calf. Why can't you, older brother? It's like, all oh, my dignity keeps me from having a celebration like that. I'm not going to celebrate a sinner. Can't celebrate that kind of grace. The older son had it all wrong. And the older son had it all wrong because he thought nothing of the fellowship of his father. Note the things that he was lamenting that he didn't have. Didn't have a young goat that he could celebrate with his friends. Having seen the gracious character of this father, do you think that he could have had a goat if he wanted? Of course he could. The older son had thought nothing of having this relationship with his father. But only thought about what he'd be able to get out of him. And look at how he says, how the father says just this in verse 31. He says to him, son, you could translate that, my child. This is a term of endearment he has. You are always with me. All that is mine is yours. And verse 32, it was fitting, or you could even translate it, it is necessary to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Can see the heart of the father and what should have been the heart of the son. When he looks and see a sinner who has been redeemed, that he should have said, well, of course we kill the fatted calf. We have someone who's welcomed back into the good graces of the father. Of course we have a celebration like this because that who was dead is now alive. Now, you'll notice that the parable ends here. It closes with the father's words. We don't see the fate of either brother. Does the younger brother take the grace of his father and stomp on it again? Does the older brother realize what it is that he has done and how ungracious he's been to his younger brother and repent and come into the meal? It's left open. 
And the reason for that is that Jesus is meant for this to be a write-your-own ending. But it's your life that writes the ending. Because, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, this is our story too. Some of us may fall more into the older brother category. Maybe we have grown up in church and feel superior to other people. What are we going to do with this passage? We're going to look to those that have sinned deeply? And are we going to think of ways that we can invite them into our lives and invite them and show them the grace of the Father? Maybe there's those among us that have more identified with a younger brother and have made an absolute mess of our lives. Are we going to come back, realize what God has offered for us, and will we stay close to him and be grateful for this sacrifice? That's the question that we all have to ask today. Will we go in and stay in with this feast? Will we rest in the grace that this Father has offered to us today? And it really is a true story that the Father that is pictured here is God, that he is even more gracious than he's described in this passage. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just a hope and a prayer. But the Father really does welcome sinners like that, even self-righteous ones, even those that we think are beyond help. So what's our takeaway today? Takeaway from this passage, or specifically the elder brother. It says, the elder brother teaches us that we cannot deserve God's love. And to think otherwise bars us from enjoying God in this life and bars us from heaven in the next. If we think that it's our own goodness that gets us there, then it will be your goodness that keeps you out. And if you think that it's your sin that's going to keep you out and you never come to Christ, it's going to be your sin that keeps you out. We lay both of those things at the feet of Jesus. It's not the good things that we've done or the sins that we've done. It's the graciousness of God that would save us. We must realize that it takes just as much grace to save a good person from their self-righteousness as it does to save the prodigal from their grossest of sins. I'll close with this illustration. My father is a physician. And one of the hardest things for him to do is to convince people to take all of their medicine or finish their course of an antibiotic. Because what people will do is they're given 10 antibiotic pills to take and they'll take the first five and they'll start to feel better and assume that the pills have done their job and throw the rest of them away. Only to have the infection reemerge and return to my father's office. Because you see, it's... They must take the whole course for them to feel better. Because if they don't, they've only weakened the sickness and have not killed it. And unfortunately, people approach Jesus the exact same way. They feel something in their heart that they know is not right. So what they try to do is they get a little bit of reform going. Try to make themselves feel better. So they'll come to church They'll start amending their ways. They'll even start praying before meals, maybe once before their bedtime. They'll read through their Bible because they, are, they know they're supposed to do that and will try to 
to read. They'll just read. They're not reading to understand, but they read their Bibles at the very least. It's been going on for 20 years, but they've never been challenged or changed by anything that they've read somehow. And that's all that they do. They've not taken the full course. They've taken what they think is Jesus. They've got a little bit of religion, got a little bit of religious activity going on, but that's not what saves. They might feel a little bit better about themselves because their life looks different, but all they've done is exchange their sins. Instead of relying on Christ and realizing, I have made a mess of my life and I do need to come to Christ. They said, no, I I have made a mess of my life, but I think I can fix it. Like I can shore this thing up. I can't. It's by coming to Christ and realizing that they are in absolute debt and that even their goodness, the best of it, can't save. That might be alarming at first, but it's relieving in the end. And that we come to Christ as debtors. And we come to Christ knowing that he is the one who paid the penalty for sin that we couldn't. Sin demands death, demands the wrath of God. And Christ took it all on the cross. And was, rose again three days later and now invites both of us, younger brother and older brother together, to come to the table of celebration. Not to celebrate our accomplishments, not to celebrate even the sun that's have come back or the sun that's always stayed, but it's a celebration to celebrate the graciousness of the Father who welcomes all to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we have had together in exploring your word. Lord, I ask that you would help us to see ourselves in truth, to not be deceived into thinking that we're good people, but to be comforted by the fact that we are a saved people. And I pray that that knowledge would drive us to a life that is pleasing to you, not to earn it, but to express our gratitude for him. Lord, I pray as we go through our lives and as we meet older brothers and younger brothers in our lives, help us to not slide them into categories and then leave them there, but to help us to reach out to them and bring them to you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.